All right, today we're going to talk about a new initiative we've called Together for the Gospel. From the beginning of my ministry here over the last three years, I've been trying to get my heart and my mind in sync with what God wants us to do to reach out into our community. I've prayed and read and studied, but it all didn't come together until it was at this conference this fall called Together for the Gospel. I was having trouble trying to create a model, a depiction of what it would look like. And, you know, in reality, what God wants us to do as a church is not a mystery. We might write our own catchy mission statements, but if it doesn't reflect the truth of the Great Commission, then we've missed the mark. Jesus himself has spelled out for us what the mission of the church should be. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has directed his church to go into our communities, into our world, and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. The action in the Great Commission is to make disciples. And we're to do that by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. That is the essential mission statement of God's church. And that is the essential mission statement of our church. So the question comes, how are we doing? If that is our God-given mission, if that is what God has given to us as our assignment, as our duty, as our purpose, as our quest, how are we doing in fulfilling the mission that God has given to us? It's the answer to that question that has spurred me on to come with you today for Together for the Gospel. There are so many areas that we're doing well and giving great service to our God, teaching and growing and maturing disciples, reaching the lost through our Sunday services and children's and women's ministry. There's an awful lot to be thankful for here at PVBC because God is working. God is alive and active in our midst. But there's a longing in my heart, as I know there is in your heart, for more. We want to be a tool in God's hands to reach our community for him. The question then comes to us, how do we reach our community? How do we help them come to know our Savior? This is a particularly challenging question in our day and age. Because for the most part, our culture has turned its back on what we could, would consider biblical truth. With the rise of pragmatism and the ultimate value of tolerance over truth, our culture has largely left behind the idea of absolute truth in any area, but especially in the area when it comes to God and religion. Our society says that whatever you believe, that's good for you. Whatever you think is true, well, that's truth for you. As we have seen and will continue to see in our study in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does not have the same values as our culture. Jesus regularly and clearly proclaims himself to be the truth and the only way to God. As they have turned their back on the truth, they have turned their back on Jesus. Instead of starting with some 
basis of common ground, we find ourselves more and more philosophically and theologically separated from our surrounding community. Without this common ground, our words are often just dismissed as out of date, as unenlightened, even as intolerant and narrow-minded. How do you penetrate a culture that is so often fundamentally opposed to our basic beliefs? We can't give up because God has put us on a mission to make disciples. If they aren't listening to our words, then what will they listen to? They will listen to our actions. We all know the saying, they don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Well, let's put a little spin on it. They don't care who we know. They don't care that we know Jesus Christ until they know we care for them. Perhaps the best way to penetrate our dark culture with the light of Christ is to love them, to serve them, and to care for them. Every church has a reputation. Every church is known for something. Wouldn't it be great to be known as the church that loves our community? Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14-16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A church set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Biblical Christianity is, by its very nature, extrinsically public. Christians, living biblically, are to be a light to this world that cannot be hidden. Verse 15 says that we should want to be that light, that Christians living biblically should want their light to shine bright and to shine far for Jesus. And many times our light shines its brightest when we're doing these good deeds in the midst of our dark culture for others to see because it points them to give glory to God. Our goal is always to be a reflection of the glory of God, pointing them to Him. Doing good works, loving, serving, and caring for our community opens up opportunities in our community to point our friends and neighbors to Jesus. They will ask, why are you doing that for us? Because we love you. Why do you love me? Because God loves you. Community outreach ministries like our Together for the Gospel ministries penetrates our community with service, with winsome and engaging believers, which then opens up opportunities to share the gospel. One of the themes in the letter to Titus is Paul teaching Titus how to penetrate the godless culture of Crete with the gospel. The Apostle Paul mentions six times in this short letter that good works, effectively living out the gospel, is one of the best tools to actually reaching out with the gospel. Good works in the midst of a bad culture often opens up the most opportunities for Christ to shine. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
Titus 3.8, this, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Titus 3.14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. The scripture is telling us that good works, effectively living out the gospel, is one of the best tools to actually reaching out with the gospel. Think for a second now. If our church would disappear, would our community feel the loss? Think about that. If, if our church burned to the ground, would our community care? Would, would they be trying to help us rebuild? Or would they even notice? If we're known as a church that loves our community, if our reputation is that we're a church that serves and cares for and loves our neighbors, we would become so much a part of our community that our community would feel a noticeable loss at our absence. And that's what we want. We want to become so much a part of loving and serving our community that our community can't live without us. Well, how do we do that? I think our passage today in Luke chapter 5 gives us three great ways to reach out our community for Christ. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. And follow along as I read verses 27 to the end of the chapter. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The the disciples of John fast often and offered prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. As we come to our passage today, the first thing, the first way it challenges us to penetrate our culture with Christ is to follow Jesus with all abandon. Levi is also the same person in the Bible that's called Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, and he's a tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. But in Jesus' day, the anger and disdain was even much greater. In verse 30, the Pharisees asked the disciples, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? In their mind, a tax collector was about as low as you could go. Why did they think this way of Matthew? Because he was a Jew who was working for the Roman occupation. And not only that, he was taking their money and giving it to Rome. 
to help them pay for the very occupation that the Jews hated. And if that wasn't bad enough, tax collectors had this terrible reputation as thieves and extortioners. They would purposely overcharge the taxes and then pocket the difference for their own benefit. They were often fairly well-to-do and almost completely isolated from regular Jewish society. Matthew was a tax collector in his tax booth outside the city of Capernaum. He had heard about Jesus. He'd probably investigated and listened to Jesus preach. He'd probably seen Jesus do those many miracles throughout Capernaum. I imagine that his, that his heart changed and leapt within him when he heard Jesus' words. He wanted to follow Christ. But how could he? Surely nobody wants a tax collector as a disciple. What chance would, would I have that Jesus would love me? And then on that momentous day, Jesus stopped by that tax collection booth, goes right up to Matthew, looks right into his eyes, and says to him, follow me, I choose you. I saw a video once that portrayed this biblical incident, and I thought they did a good job because when Jesus goes up to Matthew and chooses him and calls him to follow him, all the other disciples look shocked and amazed. Surely Jesus didn't just walk up to this tax collector and ask him to be one of his followers too. Not someone like them. He can't choose that guy. We want more people like us. How does Matthew respond to Jesus' call? He gets up immediately and leaves everything to follow Jesus. He abandons it all to follow Christ. I want to point out two points of application from this passage this morning. One is that Jesus' choice is unpredictable. We don't know whom Jesus has called to follow him. It is our duty, it is our responsibility, it is our privilege to call everyone to Christ, to offer them all new life to Christ, to let them choose through God's sovereign choice. Our target audience is everyone within our community. We want to reach them all. Not just the ones like us, not just the ones we feel comfortable with, not just the ones that can give back to us from us giving to them. No, we want to reach them all, no matter what their color, gender, status, or heritage. No matter what terrible sin issue they might be dealing with, Jesus chose Matthew, the most least likely out of them all to follow him. And he chose you, and he chose me. Some of us are the most least likely too. He loved us so. And so we must love them as well. Secondly, we see that Matthew abandoned it all to follow Christ. If we want to reach our community for Christ, we need to be real, authentic followers of Christ. Jesus is not some kind of clothes we wear, but he's the very beat of our heart. You know what? Our world is searching for authenticity. In this world that is so fake, will they find it in us? Will they find authentic, genuine, true, real believers in us? Are we walking the talk? Are we practicing for all to see the sincerity of our faith? This world is looking at our lives. Are, are we a light reflecting Jesus that is spurring our friends and neighbors to see God's glory? Are we winsome and engaged believers that are adorning the grace of God by our actions? When people look at you, when they evaluate your life, do they want what you have? 
Are you a sold out, on fire, true blue, fully abandoned follower of Christ? If we have any chance of penetrating our culture with Christ, we have to be real, substantive believers. Our Together for the Gospel initiative will get us out of our church walls and into our community so that we can love them and we can show them that we are the genuine deal. We are authentic followers of Jesus Christ. The next way we see to penetrate our culture with Christ is to serve our community. One of the first things that Matthew does is he throws a party. And he invites all of his friends. He didn't abandon his old friends. He didn't distance himself from his colleagues. No, he served them. He wanted them to get to know Jesus. He wanted them to experience the freedom and the joy of a relationship with Jesus. So to our hearts resonate with that same note for our friends. But this brings a a question to mind. How many friends do we have that don't know Jesus? They're not acquaintances, not distanced neighbors, but friends. Real friends. People people you hang out with. People you invite over for dinner. People that you have your kids play with. One of the challenges that often accompanies a maturity in Christ and as our culture is the loss of friends who do not know Jesus. We get so involved in Christian things, we lose sight of the harvest fields of souls that God has called us to. So it is important that we take purposeful steps to reach out past our comfort zones. So let me take this a step further and step on some toes, including my own toes. In his blog in this past year, titled, What Do You Really Think About Us?, Tom Rayner, president of Lifeway Resources, seminary professor and author, just copied word for word some responses to his postings from non-Christians. Here are three comments. The first one is under the category that Christians aren't really interested in others. They said Christians look at everyone as if they've got targets painted on their forehead. Nobody likes to be hunted down or, or treated like someone else's project. We don't need to drop our beliefs just to accept yours. We don't need to become more like you just to be acceptable people, worthy of being regarded as people instead of targets. Love doesn't seek to create clones of itself. That's selfishness. The second comment from a non-Christian in the category that Christians are self-centered and judgmental. They said, why not ask me about what I believe? Why not show an interest in what is interesting to me instead of me, instead of expecting me to always be interested in what you're interested in? Christians are so selfish and self-centered. Tell me, when was the last time an atheist rang your doorbell to tell you about his worldview? The reason the world hates Christians is because they behave badly. They're rude and boorish and arrogant and conceited and full of themselves, ignorant and judgmental. Go ahead, accuse me of being judgmental now. It doesn't matter. I don't claim to follow a belief system that actually rules against being judgmental. The third comment here asserts that we're unwilling to develop true friendships with non-Christians. As a mother of young children in our homeschooling environment, we found ourselves surrounded by Christians. Of course, the kids would become friends and we moms would chat while the kids played. Without a single exception, this acquaintanceship only progressed to the point that I had to make it clear that no, I would not accept Jesus as my personal Savior, and no, I would not be attending their church. Then the Christians never called again. 
and I was left to explain to my sad children why their new friends wouldn't play with them anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. From the very beginning, I've been teaching and preaching on the necessity of evangelism and making disciples. I even started off this whole message saying the Great Commission is our mission as our church. But wouldn't it be foolish of us to not evaluate the constructive criticism of others? Wouldn't it be short-sighted of us to not try to glean some truth from these comments? What is the non-Christian world saying to us? If it is our goal to make disciples, to fulfill the Great Commission, to be laborers in the harvest field, then we need to evaluate why are we becoming so less effective in reaching new believers in our day? What do non-believers really want from us? Tom Rainer put it in four categories. We need to demonstrate respect and be interested in others. Showing respect in the person, just as a person with value. We should not be condescending in our attitude, which makes them feel like a target rather than a person. We need to really care about non-Christians and show it. The non-Christians not writing us off. They're just waiting for us to show authentic faith and love. And we need to demonstrate compassion with respect. We do believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But for that message to be heard with their ears, they need to see it lived out with our hands and feet. The non-Christians in this blog would often positively comment like this. They would say that the Christians who influenced me the most showed love and kindness and compassion, took the time to develop a friendship with me, and did not compromise their beliefs. So the challenge comes to us today. Do we take the time that's necessary? Do we have a long-term view in our relationship with non-Christians? Why do we struggle when, when it comes to committing to them as a person and not just seeing them as a target or a project? If you knew that your cousin or your friend or your neighbor would come to faith after 20 years of prayers, after 20 years of faithful friendship and visits and vacations together and love and service and sharing those your faith at those God-given timely moments. Wouldn't you do that? We would all do that. We need to be prepared to share our faith in the short-term relationships of our lives. Unfortunately, this is often the only way we see evangelism. We also need to be prepared to do the hard work of long-term relationships, of years of friendship, of love and service with aptly spoken words of faith. That, too, is evangelism. That, too, is making disciples. And in many cases, in our day, we don't get to be heard until we clearly show them our love and care. One of the targets of Together for the Gospel is to have a long-term, sustained presence in our community, loving them and serving them and showing them the gospel in action, developing a reputation as a church, that loves them, that loves our community. And then the doors will open to sharing our faith in those God-given moments. The next way we see to penetrate our culture with Christ is to do new things. While at Matthew's uh, party, the Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples don't fast and don't pray like, like they do and like John the Baptist's followers do. Do you know what they're really asking him? Why aren't you more like us? Why aren't you adhering to the tried and true ways of expressing faith? 
Why are you doing things differently? Why are you shaking up the status quo? Don't you realize, Jesus, that it would be a lot easier for you and for your followers if you just did it the same way we've always done it? Jesus has two responses to these questions. The first is that no one fasts when you're at the wedding feast. Again, Jesus is here claiming a superiority over their traditions. Someone greater than their traditions is here, namely Jesus, the very Son of God, and fasting right now would not be appropriate. He says, when the bridegroom, when he is taken away, then his followers will fast. The point here is that Jesus is proclaiming himself to be more important, to have a greater authority than any earthly religious tradition. The first evaluation of any effort to live out Christ's love in our community must be, does it elevate Jesus? Does it focus on Jesus? Does it promote our Savior well? His second response to their question is the parable about how something that is new doesn't fit on something that is old. A new patch used on an old garment will only cause the garment to tear once the new patch shrinks. New wine put in old wineskins will only cause the old wineskins to break. As the new wine ferments, the, the, the old wineskin doesn't have the elasticity to expand. Jesus' teaching is new. There, there's a new covenant with his people. There's a new testament of God's truth. The new is not a patch that will fit on the old garment. The new is not wine that will fit into the old wineskin. The new teaching is not just an add-on to the old. It's new and it stands as a fulfillment of the old. Jesus was breaking away from the confines of the old law and presenting himself as the Messiah, the one who fulfilled the law's requirements for us, so that as we trust in him, his righteousness is applied to our account and we are accepted by God because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus did an amazingly wonderful new thing. But the leaders of Jesus' day didn't want to accept the new. They didn't want to change. Do you know the last seven words of the church? The classic book. The title of it is The Last Seven Words of the Church. We've never done it that way before. I got six and I messed up. We've never done it that way before. Change is hard. We all face reality in many areas of our lives. There's not a person in here who likes change. But we all do it on a regular basis because it is the one constant that is in our lives, right? The one constant is change. Our age changes, our circumstance changes, our children change, our jobs change, our health change. We are begging for the season to change. And we could go on and on and on. The better we adapt to the changes in our lives, often the better our lives are. But folks, there are precious things in our lives that don't ever change. And they provide us with great stability. Our love, our family, our God. As our church grows, there is change. Change in numbers, change in facilities, change in ministries, change in services. Important and necessary changes to better serve our God and fulfill his mission. But folks, there are those precious things that don't ever change, that never can change, that provide us with great stability, namely our love, our doctrine, our God. Together for the gospel is something new, but 
Really, it's just a new expression of the core of who we are, of what we believe. It's a new initiative to reach our community for Christ, the very same passion that started this church nearly 50 years ago. Now, let me talk about some of the specifics here. Together for the Gospel is really a combination of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, and Acts 1.8. See, Acts 1.8 is the key verse to the book of Acts, and it details to us Jesus' outreach plan for the new church. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It was when I was at this conference and was thinking about our outreach plan that, that these two passages came together for me to create an outreach model. Following the Acts 1-8 model, we have four Together for the Gospel teams. There's the Together Poland team, which corresponds to Jerusalem. There's the Together Struthers team, which corresponds to Judea. Together Youngstown, which corresponds to Samaria. And Together World, which is our world mission focus. We're already in the progress of putting team leaders and steering teams for the Together Poland and Together Struthers teams. These teams will research and come up with at least two ways this year that we can serve and love our nearest communities, Poland and Struthers. We did an event last year, do you remember? The 4th of July parade in Struthers, and God used that to reach people and new families in our in our community, we saw several people come to VBS because we were in a parade. The goal of our Together Poland, Together Struthers teams is to volunteer to do service projects in our communities, showing God's love and care, and to start to build our reputation as a church that loves our community. Perhaps in Poland we could do something to support Celebrate Poland or park cleanup days, or supporting Relay for Life, or doing something at a school. Perhaps in Struthers, along with doing the parade, we could volunteer at their cleanup days, or have a table at the Malfi Park on Struthers Day with free face painting and water. I mean, there are tons of ideas. There are amazing options before us. Now, we don't want to get overwhelmed. We want to just start the process. Start small and slow and See how God leads. When we get some dates and service events scheduled, we'll have sign-up sheets in the bullet, on the bulletin board out there, in the foyer, giving everyone and anyone an opportunity to participate. One of the ideas I have, and we'll see if it flies, but one of the ideas I have is to get every volunteer a blue t-shirt with our new church logo on it so that as we're out serving together, we're together as a church together for the gospel. I envision the Together Youngstown team differently. I see, the, I see here they're partnering with already established ministries and organizations to help support what they're doing. We're already doing that with the rescue mission. We financially support the rescue mission. Uh, this, this winter I had asked uh, Ron Starcher, if there was a way, if there was something special that he needed that the church could do to help out with the cold and, you know, they were in the news and all that, is there something that, that you'd need that we could do? And he mentioned to me something that was great. He said, you know what we really need? We need new pew Bibles in our chapel. Guess what? When someone asks you to buy Bibles, is that like the easiest answer on planet Earth to give? Of course, Yes. 
We bought two cases of pew Bibles for the rescue mission. Put them down there in the chapel for them. And Pastor Ron Starcher was so thankful to us, to you, for making that possible for them. You know, we serve there once a month as a, in, in the food. Myself and Don Fisher and Lyle Orr preach there once a month in their chapel. In the fall, we do a food pantry dive for them, and there's still more that we can do. There are other ministries in Youngstown that we could support and become a part of, like the Crisis Pregnancy Center and Teen Challenge and others. What we need are point people for connecting us to these service opportunities. So if you're interested in being a point person for connecting us to a ministry that we can support and become a part of, let me know. The goal is that our point person will be a person of passion for that service opportunity and help lead us as a church serving there. Our Together World team as a leader will be forming a team soon. It's our goal to stay better connected to our missionaries and serve them better, to update the congregation better with what's going on with them and to pray for them more. One of the preachers at that conference, the Together for the Gospel conference, was Steve Byers of Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana. In the early 1990s, they were preparing to build a new sanctuary. They had $9 million saved. And then the Lord challenged him and the other leaders. Do you really want to spend $9 million on a room that you're going to use for just a few hours a week? So instead, guess what they did? They built a Y. They built a YMCA for their community on their church campus. And that was just the start. Now on their campus, there's a women's shelter. There's a retirement community. A few years ago, they built a dormitory for students, for Purdue University students, with the bottom floor as a community center. During the week, they used that for many different campus and city events, and on Sunday, it's transformed into a church. When the mayor of Lafayette received a grant, $700,000 a year for the next 10 years to develop uh, and recondition homes in the poor areas of town. He called Pastor Viers to see if he could put together an organization to use this government grant to minister to these homes in their community. I could go on and on about how God is transforming Lafayette, Indiana, because one church decided that they would be known as a church that loved their community. Now, we're not a large church. We don't have $9 million in the bank. If anybody would like to donate $9 million... I'll be standing in the back as we leave. No, we're a small church. We have something, you know, that is really much more precious than $9 million. We're a church that knows how to love. And we have more than enough love to give away to our community. See, beloved, perhaps in not too distant future, our community will say of us, now there's a church that knows how to love us. And care for us. Oh, Father, may it be. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered together this morning to hear from you. We have no desire to have initiatives. We have no desire to have plans that are not exactly what you want for us, that are not in step with your spirit and your plans. And so we pray for that. We pray that 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 this initiative, this Together for the Gospel, is exactly what you want. Mold it and make it and 
change it and form it into, into a tool that's usable in your hands. Lord, mold and make us. Lord, we are a church that knows how to love. You've given us skills and abilities to, to reach out into our neighborhoods and to our communities. Lord, help us to organize that and to, and, to, and to focus that in a way that then broadens the scope of the power of your gospel within our community. Lord, the harvest is ripe, you said. It's plentiful. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that would send out laborers. Father, may we be laborers, good workers for you in the harvest, in our communities, empowered by your Holy Spirit, giving you all the glory, reflection of your light to glorify you. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.